You're listening to the BBM Global Network with 25 years in broadcast audio and video production. Our passionate team creates content and marketing for the world of Internet talk radio. If you've got a passion, come join us at BBMGlobalNetwork.com. The BBM Global Network. Your voice is now heard. To All About Nursing with your host, Dr. Joyce Batchelor. Executive Nurse Advisor Dr. Batchelor will present the significant role nurses play in providing health care in a multitude of healthcare settings. Listen to some of today's key nurses who work and practice in academia settings and talk about the challenges they face in today's modern medical world. So please welcome the host of All About Nursing, Dr. Joyce Batchelor. Good evening. I'm your host, Dr. Joyce Batchelor. I'm all about nursing, and we're live on the BBM Global Network and TuneIn Radio. I have a wonderful guest that I would like to introduce to all of you that is just leading a lot of very incredible work. And uh, my guest is Kristen Choi. She's an assistant professor of nursing and public health at UCLA. She studies mental health services for children, including trauma, violence, and developmental disabilities. She also practices as a registered nurse at a safety net psychiatric hospital in Los Angeles. In 2020, she was the first and only nurse listed as a Forbes 30 under 30 healthcare honoree for her research on mental health, as well as COVID-19. Dr. Choi is studying how COVID-19 affects the mental health of children. She also participated in the Pfizer Biotech COVID-19 vaccine trial in the summer of 2020 and is helping to distribute COVID-19 vaccines in Los Angeles. So welcome to the show, Kristen. Thank you so much for having me, Yeah, it's wonderful to have you. So um, could you start off by telling the audience um, a little bit about how you were selected for this 40, the Forbes 30 under 30 and, and what it's meant to you to be on this list? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it was a really big honor to be on the Forbes uh, 30 under 30 list in 2020 because historically, uh, Forbes has not recognized uh, very many frontline clinicians and, and certainly, um, to my knowledge, has not recognized the nurse before. Um, there is a public nomination process that happens a couple months before the uh, list is announced. And then there, uh, all the nominees go through a panel of judges and journalists to kind of look at what all of the nominees have accomplished and uh, decide who, who is going to be on the list. And, you know, they really look for people who course under the age of 30 but also people who um, have made a difference somehow even if it's in a small way um, early in their careers so um, I was nominated for this list by my dean at the School of Nursing at UCLA um, I didn't know that I was on the list until it was actually announced um, but it was really meaningful to me to be uh, included there uh, just because of uh, what a historic year it was for nursing in a lot of ways uh, we know that it was uh, 2020 was declared the International Year of the Nurse in the Midwife by the World Health Organization. And of course, with the COVID-19 pandemic, um, it became really clear to all of us just how important nurses are. 
Um, and so, yeah, I felt very honored to represent nursing on that list. And, uh, you know, I, I hope it brings attention to the work that nurses are doing to change healthcare every day. Um, I think nurses are often not the kind of people that really seek out recognition for the work that we do. We often uh, see it as it's, it's just part of our job to, to take care of patients and families and to make a difference for people. But I hope that uh, we have learned from this pandemic how important that work is and that there's more recognition of it going forward um, all over the place, but certainly in circles like Forbes. That's awesome, and it sounds like it was extremely competitive. I, did you I had to like prepare for it, or did you really just kind of go in knowing that they could ask you anything? Yeah, um, I did. So there's a written application process that you do, and I had a lot of people help me put it together to really think about how to communicate um, that impact piece. Uh, it's, uh, the Forbes list has historically had more people who have uh, sort of entrepreneurial ventures in healthcare. They've maybe started a healthcare tech company or a startup of some kind. So I think communicating impact as a nurse and a nursing researcher was a little bit different. Um, in the healthcare world, you know, and in the research world, we, we use lots of jargon, and I really had to think about how to communicate impact in a way that people outside of healthcare who might not be clinicians uh, might understand. Uh, so after I submitted the application, um, there was a process of being contacted for additional questions and interviews by journalists before the final list was announced there. Uh, and you know, the great news is that in the 2020 list, I think there was more of an emphasis on recognizing frontline clinicians. I saw some residents and physicians and other folks who were doing um, doing the work of making change in healthcare and again, kind of less traditional ways and, and in ways that were not necessarily just entrepreneurial. I mean, that sounds really exciting. And um, I've been very curious about your pathway because you've really gotten into a specialization pretty early in your career. And I was just curious, how did you know that you really wanted to spend time working on mental health services for children and including trauma, violence, developmental disabilities? Those are not easy challenges. So I was just curious about that. Could you tell us a little bit more? Sure, absolutely. So um, when I was a nursing student, I think I didn't really uh, have a lot of clarity about the direction that I wanted my career to go. I think I knew some topics and patient populations that I was really interested in, and I had a really specific interest in uh, trauma and violence just because I saw that showing up so much for my patients and that it was something that really affected their health but I wasn't really sure what it would look like to have a career in nursing in that way. In nursing school, um, a lot of the focus is on preparing nurses to work in hospitals. So um, it wasn't as clear to me what I could do in, in the face of violence or mental health. While I was a nursing student though, um, I was at the University of Michigan. Um, I, uh, uh, th there was a new program that was started at the University of Michigan to try to get people to get a PhD a little bit younger and faster than what's been done in the past. Um, through an integrated BSN to PhD program. Um, around that time, I had gotten started on involvement in some research and I really liked it. And I realized that research might be a path for me to, uh, to focus on trauma and violence and how it affects people's health uh, in my nursing career. And so I kind of got into that pathway first through research. Uh, once I finished my PhD, which was again, focused very much on uh, child abuse and violence and how those issues affected health, um, I kind of came to realize that that problem is just one small piece of a much broader uh, puzzle of our mental health systems in the U.S. and that there is 
quite a lot of dysfunction and a lot of gaps and a really staggering lack of attention to mental health problems and research and policy. And as I kind of came to see where my really small piece of research for my PhD fit into the bigger picture, um, I started to think much more about how I could do research to try to transform mental health systems on a bigger level um, than just one particular area. Since then, I've gone on to do studies in a whole lot of different domains of mental health for kids. I've done some research on trauma. I've done some research on autism, some on suicide, some on depression. And, uh, you know, I, I think um, in mental health, there's so much need uh, for research and for solutions. Um, and I've come to really like approaching mental health from a systems level um, and thinking about how do we create better structures and services more so than focusing on any one particular disorder. Yeah, I mean, it's unusual in some ways that you were able to find that this was your niche, like really pretty early in your career. Had you worked in healthcare prior to going to nursing school? No, I didn't. Um, I, I kind of, um, I had an odd um, pathway to nursing, I guess. You know, I think a lot of people get into nursing because of a personal experience where you know, they either knew a nurse or maybe had a family member who was sick or something like that. I uh, didn't have any nurses in my family. I had never been really around anyone who was very sick or in a hospital um, very often and really didn't know much about it. Um, I actually spent a lot of my high school, funny enough, thinking that I wanted to go to art school and being really interested in creative um, endeavors. But I also really liked math and science and uh, kind of just decided that nursing uh, seemed like a really good path for me there. So, went into nursing school and uh, I, I, I think um, you're right that my path hasn't been traditional and I think uh, that's something that I try to embrace as someone who's now a professor at UCLA. That's wonderful. Well, this is all about nursing. I'm Dr. Joyce Batchelor. We're live on the BBM Global Network and TuneIn Radio and right now it's time for us to take a short break. Have you ever felt like no one is listening or you're not getting the honest attention you deserve? Do you even know the kind of attention you want or need? You are not alone. Alice Aspen March is here to help. Thanks to Alice, through her epiphany and research over the word attention, there are solutions to the attention dilemma. Worldwide audiences have been enthralled and engaged for over 40 years with her visionary and pioneering observations. The kind of attention we get and give is vital to improving our lives and society. Alice and her weekly guests review game-changing insights for transforming and improving our understanding of attention, providing techniques for creating healthier and empowering behavior. Get a new perspective on a mainstream word. Tune into Why Our Attention Matters for fresh and thought-provoking conversations every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern on BoldBraveMedia.com and the TuneIn Radio app. What if there were a super tiny device that could diagnose the brain and is smaller than a single human hair? What if you could see inside the brain to help an epilepsy patient during surgery or to help the fight against Parkinson's disease? Dr. Patricia Broderick is proud to announce the Broderick Probe, a biomedical and electronic breakthrough. Imagine a probe to help with the understanding and potential cure of brain-related diseases. To learn more, listen live to the Easy Sense Radio Show with host Dr. Broderick. Wednesdays, 7 p.m. Eastern on the Bold Brave Media Network and TuneIn Radio. And to help support the Broderick Foundation, please go to Easy 
HealthySense.com and learn how, with your help, we can fight these horrific brain disorders. That's HealthySense.com to learn more and help support the Broderick Foundation. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to All About Nursing, live from the BBM Global Network and TuneIn Radio. I'm Dr. Joyce Batchelor, the host of the show, and I have a guest with me this evening who is Dr. Kristen Choi. She is the Assistant Professor of Nursing and Public Health at UCLA, and she has been sharing with us a lot about her achievement of being recognized as one of the Forbes 30 under 30 and and then the incredible work that she's been leading with uh, children's mental health services. So yeah, I was curious, Kristen, if you could share a little bit on what have you seen happen with the mental health services and needs of children as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic? You know, I'm so glad you asked that, Joyce. I think it's a really important question. And, you know, from my vantage point in mental health, I think um, one of the disappointing aspects of the pandemic is that we haven't talked as much about the mental health impact of what's going on with COVID. Um, There's been a lot of focus, of course, on the public health, the infectious disease, the hospitalizations. But what I'm seeing in my practice is that there's this whole secondary pandemic of mental health needs um, that I worry is going to last for a really long time beyond uh, kind of the resolution of the immediate COVID crisis. So when COVID first started, um, I think it's really important to know that our mental health systems were not in a really great place pre-COVID. We know that in the United States, about one in five adults and about one in five in children have some kind of health disorder, and about half of those people do not receive any treatment. Um, There's a lot of problems with gaps in mental health services. Uh, In the U.S., about a third of Americans live in a mental health provider shortage area. Uh, There was just some really concerning research that came out uh, looking at the psychiatric workforce showing that in 70% of counties in the U.S., there's not a single child psychiatrist, and in 50% of counties, there's not a single adult psychiatrist. So we were not in a good place pre-COVID. I, I think the last thing that I'll mention is that we've seen uh, rising suicide rates for the past couple of decades that don't seem to be slowing down, and that's a concern as well. So um, when COVID hit, uh, you know, I felt concerned about the mental health impact and thought that we would see a lot of mental health demand right away. But that actually didn't happen. Um, In the spring, when the pandemic first started, at the facility where I work, we actually saw a huge decrease in demand for services. Um, It felt like, you know, no one was really coming in or calling in for help, and that was really surprising to us. Um, But after kind of the initial months of lockdown, we saw that demand jump right back up to where it was before, and I would say now it's even more than what it was pre-COVID. And, you know, that kind of trend we saw of initial decreased service and then a big spike is what we've seen in a lot of healthcare. In the first few months of the pandemic, people just stopped going to the doctor for all kinds of reasons uh, because we were all scared and we didn't really know a lot about the virus. Um, but unfortunately, that miscare for mental health, um, I think, is a problem and we're going to see more and more need going forward. Do you think that telehealth has played a part with helping people get access to mental health services? Yeah, I do. I think that telehealth is one um, one place where I'm excited about the future of mental health. I think it has mm-hmm. potential to really help increase access to care for people that have traditionally been underserved. The, the big caveat yeah. with that, though, is that I think for some people, telehealth can be better 
um, I've talked to some patients who say that, you know, it's kind of intimidating to start maybe seeing a therapist and being able to text or have a phone call feels uh, easier than, you know, going in person. So I think it can help for some people, but I think there are also always going to be some people that really value those in-person, face-to-face interactions with their therapist or psychiatrist or nurse practitioner, whoever they're seeing. So going forward, I hope that we can have both. I hope that we can have telehealth for people who want to use it and expand access to that, but also know that it probably can't fully replace um, what it means to be talking to someone in person about mental health. Yeah, and I've had people tell me that they also think that there's no stigma attached because you don't see me walking into a building that says, you know, me- um, mental health services or whatever it is. And so sure, I, I agree with you. There's probably a, a range of different ways people need to have that kind of service available. I was curious if you have seen uh, an increase in children being abused, being at home, and there's a lot of pressure, I think, on the families trying to work at home and take care of your kids and do their school at work. And I was just curious if that's become a bigger issue that you're seeing. Yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, you know, unfortunately, in the setting where I work um, in inpatient child psychiatry, uh, child abuse is pretty common at baseline. The vast majority of patients, unfortunately, who I see have experienced some kind of abuse or neglect. However, there has been research that's come out uh, since the pandemic started showing that the severity of child abuse incidents has seemed to increase during the pandemic. Uh, We know that a lot of kids um, have stressful situations at home and that some of the broader sort of societal conditions that their parents are facing, whether that's losing a job, uh, losing family members to COVID, having to care for family members, has led to um, potentially some increases in stress at home and in some cases domestic violence and child abuse. So that that's really concerning to see and kind of speaks to the broader need to, to support families in this pandemic. I think the other piece for kids that we sometimes um, haven't thought about is the trauma of grief and of loss. Um, we know that losing people suddenly in your life to death or to serious illness can be experienced as quite traumatic for children. Um, and seeing the really staggering number of lives we've lost in COVID, many of whom have been grandparents, caregivers, you know, mm-hmm. aunts, uncles, even parents, um, it's something that I do worry about how kids are going to cope with that loss going forward. It's something that we really need to pay attention to. Um, I'm especially uh, an advocate that as we start to think about reopening schools, that this is a real opportunity to reimagine how we provide mental health services in schools and that we really think about when we send kids back, how can we make sure that they're supported to go back in light of uh, the potential for loss and the potential for um, just a lot of stressors from what we've all experienced this year. So I, I thought it was kind of striking when you said one out of every five people has some sort of issues with mental health. And, you know, what is it that we could be doing and looking for with our loved ones, our friends, uh, co-workers, as we're, you know, out there? Because every, everybody I talk to just seems like I mean, the stressors have been pretty phenomenal during this last year. So I was curious if you have any ideas or words of advice for everyone listening. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. And like I said, I think COVID has only exacerbated something that was a problem before this pandemic even started. You know, I think the first thing is for people to know that if you are experiencing uh, symptoms of depression, anxiety, suicide, any kind of mental illness, to know that um, you're not alone and that it's okay to ask for help. 
Um, I think in the U.S. sometimes we can sort of have a mentality where we see mental illness as a sign of weakness and we're not always good at asking for help. So I think the first thing is to be willing to ask for help and to encourage your loved ones to get help if they're experiencing those issues. Um, the second thing I'd say is that just talking about it and getting support for it can be really helpful um, because, again, there are resources out there and things that we know can work to help people recover. Thank you, Kristen. That's great. We are coming to you live from the BVM Global Network and TuneIn Radio. This is All About Nursing. I'm Dr. Joyce Batchelor, and we will continue this conversation when we come back. Mike Zorick, a three-time California state champion in Greco-Roman wrestling at 114 pounds. Mike, blind since birth, was born in Hartford, Connecticut. He was a six-time national placer, including two seconds, two-thirds, and two-fourths. He also won the Veterans Folk Style Wrestling twice at 152 pounds. In all these tournaments, he was the only blind competitor. Nancy Zorick, a creative spirit whose talents have taken her to the stage and into galleries and exhibitions in several states. Her father, a commercial artist who shared his instruments with his daughter and helped her fine-tune her natural abilities, influenced her decision to follow in his footsteps. Ms. Zorick has enjoyed a fruitful career doing what she loves. Listen Saturday mornings at 12 Eastern for The Nancy and Mike Show for heartwarming stories and interesting talk on the B. BBM Global Network. Author, radio show host, and coach John M. Hawkins reveals strategies to help gain perspective, build confidence, find clarity, achieve goals. John M. Hawkins' new book, Coached to Greatness, Unlock Your Full Potential with Limitless Growth. Published by iUniverse, Hawkins reveals strategies to help readers accomplish more. He believes the book can coach them to greatness. Hawkins says that the best athletes get to the top of their sport with the help of coaches, mentors, and others. He shares guidance that helps readers reflect on what motivates them, rediscover and assess their core values, philosophies, and competencies, find settings that allow them to be the most productive, and track their progress towards accomplishing goals. Listen to John Hawkins' My Strategy, Saturdays, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the BBM Global Network and Tune in radio. I'm your host, Dr. Joyce Batchelor, and all about nursing, and we're live on the BPM Global Network and Tune in Radio. And before the break, my guest, Dr. Kristen Choi, was telling us about some of the work she's been leading around mental health services and talking about what people can do to really take. Uh, notice if other people that you're work, working with may have some stressors and one of the things that you said that sort of struck a nerve is when you were talking about the you know children having loss and i just think about the loss that the staff have been dealing with as they've had more deaths of patients than they've ever seen in their careers and and um so it's just curious you know what are some of the biggest challenges that healthcare workers are facing as a result of the pandemic yeah, the, the mental health of healthcare workers is another aspect of this pandemic that I, uh, I think we need to talk about much more than we currently are. You know, we've known for a long time that working in healthcare is really stressful. It's a stressful kind of occupation. Um, there's lots of risk of injuries, of violence, um, as well as a lot of documentation that doctors and nurses can really easily experience burnout, as well as secondary trauma. 
um, research shows that, you know, when we are exposed to death and dying and suffering of others over and over, even if it's not happening to us, if we're just seeing it, we can actually start to develop trauma symptoms, the same as someone who has actually experienced something traumatic. And that phenomenon, which is called secondary trauma, we see quite a lot in healthcare workers who might be exposed to a lot of death and dying in the course of their job. Um, you know, because in the pandemic, especially in some big cities like New York, L.A., and really a lot of other places in the U.S., we saw this huge influx of COVID patients, um, and many of whom uh, died and, and didn't come out of the hospital after, um, after being admitted. Uh, I think that there's a lot of potential uh, for doctors and nurses and all the staff at healthcare facilities to need some support for what they've seen. Uh, definitely grief and loss is a really big one. Um, Certainly depression, anxiety, nightmares and trauma symptoms could come up for healthcare workers. Uh, we know of at least one high profile case as well of a physician who actually died by suicide after working with the pandemic in New York. And, you know, all of those things really point to where we need a lot of intervention and support for our healthcare workforce. I think that after this pandemic, um, you know, a lot of people are going to be really burnt out and really in a place of depletion after working so hard on the front lines this year. Um, and it'll be really important that we support them uh, and, and make sure that they're equipped to move forward and don't leave the profession um, because of what's going on with COVID. I think also a lot of the mental health, uh, potential mental health issues in the healthcare workforce have been exacerbated by some of the broader context of the pandemic. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw a lot of uh, poor access to personal protective equipment. You know, there were hospitals that were locking up masks and, you know, firing people for wearing masks to work and things like that and not really looking out for, for healthcare workers and their safety. Um, we also know that the broader societal context for the pandemic has been pretty polarized. You know, in some cases, uh, people didn't believe that the virus was real or didn't take it seriously or didn't want to follow public health guidelines. Guidelines. Um, I know from talking to a lot of nurses and physicians as well that it was really demoralizing to feel like, you know, we're here risking our lives and people don't care about this. They, they think it's just a joke and they're not taking it seriously. And those things really do make it worse and make it harder to cope with your job. Absolutely. I am hearing the same sorts of things. And I think in addition, when they have lost a co-worker uh, to COVID and they also have seen people dying without their families being allowed in, that's taken a toll because that's not the way we normally practice in uh, nursing, as absolutely. you know. Absolutely. I also think that, you know, um, I've done some research on healthcare workers to respond to mass shootings. And in a way, there's some similarities in terms of just having this sudden mass influx of patients. And from the work I've done, you know, what doctors and nurses have told me that the worst possible thing for them is to watch patients die um, who you know you could have done something if there just weren't so many of them. If you just had more resources, more people, more time, or there just hadn't been such an overwhelming number of patients that you could have saved them. And that that is something that really sticks with them uh, and causes a lot of distress. And I just have to imagine that so much of that has happened with COVID, that we've seen a lot of people who are sick uh, needlessly because of the spread of the virus that just wasn't contained and people not taking it seriously. And that is really hard to, to watch and to live with and, and to know that people died and it didn't have to be this way. You know, we could have done, done things differently. There was a very powerful film that was made that's out on the internet called Death Through Nurses' Eyes. It's two critical care nurses that wear cameras into the ICUs and go through uh, what a typical shift is like. And 
the kinds of things that they're challenged with, and it's very moving. Most people that watch it are are tearful, and the ending is exactly what you were describing. They leave, and they're at as they're leaving the hospital, all these people are outside partying, having a good time, no masks, no social distancing, yeah. and it's it's just demoralizing to them. And so yeah. it is a major polarization that we have that's really impacting our care workers. And I, like you, hear a lot of concerns about people will retire, they'll get out of the acute care hospitals, um, lots of anxieties around how many people are going to be left standing in nursing as we come out of this. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and as you were describing this too, I was I was just going to share with you. I had also called and spoken to um, one of the Surgeon Generals, Lieutenant Gen- General uh, Dorothy Hogg, because I was curious for she's with Chief Nursing um, Officer for the Air Force how they prepare nurses for a war zone because that's what we seem like we've had our staff in and we're not preparing people for seeing that. And so that might you know I don't know if you've seen anything if that kind of relates to some of the research you've done with mass shootings um but you know there's no, certainly a lot of, yeah yeah there's yeah, and the no, guilt complex there's a lot of similarities yeah there's a lot of similarities there as well and just being exposed to potentially um just a really high volume of patients or injuries or disease in the case of covid um and, and that is really hard to cope with if you're not prepared for it and if we don't have resources for it i think that in healthcare there can sometimes be sort of this pervasive sentiment among doctors and nurses that uh we we have to be tough you know it's it's our job and we can handle this and be kind of emotionally uh just unfazed by what we see but i think the reality is that when we talk about these things and are willing to get help when we are struggling it makes us better doctors and nurses than when we pretend that it doesn't affect us Oh, exactly. Very well said. We are coming to you live from the BVM Global Network and TuneIn Radio. This is all about nursing. I'm Dr. Joyce Batcher, the host, and we will be right back. The opiate epidemic has reached crisis levels, and with so many families affected by addiction, opiate-related drug overdoses, and death, the time is now to have a real constructive conversation about addiction that could lead to better prevention, treatment, and recovery. Alan Charles, author and keynote speaker on drug abuse and prevention, presents The Alan Charles Show. Alan brings a message of hope, sharing his unbelievable story of surviving a 24-year addiction to cocaine and highlights from his memoir, Walking Out the Other Side, an addict's journey from loneliness to life. His raw honesty and courageous heart breaks the stigma of addiction and offers a unique perspective into the mind of an addict. Join Alan each week as he brings his listeners to a true understanding of the grip of addiction. It is only with this understanding that we can begin to heal. The Alan Charles Show, Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern on the BBM Global Network. Renaissance woman, trailblazer, maverick. Those are just some of the words to describe Tashandra Poulard, owner and CEO of House Virgo Entertainment, LLC, a woman minority veteran-owned entertainment company based in Washington, D.C. Ms. Poulard served 10 years honorably in the United States Navy and departed from active duty to pursue her dreams of becoming an entertainment mogul. House of Virgo Entertainment offers script writing, producing, directing, DJ services, editing, and more. 
They cater to businesses, corporations, college students, working professionals, aspiring artists and nonprofit organizations, and employ veterans of the armed forces. Tashandra Poulard is pioneering the way we view media and taking her brand global. Visit her at www.houseofvirgoentertainment.com or call 281-515-3740 and like her on Facebook at House of Virgo Entertainment, LLC. You are listening to All About Nursing, live from the BPM Global Network and TuneIn Radio. I'm Dr. Joyce Batchel, the host of the show, and I have Dr. Kristen Choi with me, who is the Assistant Professor of Nursing and Public Health at UCLA. She has been sharing just a lot of wonderful information about the incredible work that she's leading and the kind of research she's involved in. And I was sort of struck with the fact that uh, uh, during one of the breaks I had asked Kristen, if she's already had her vaccines, and um, and actually, you were part of the COVID nineteen vaccine trial. So I was curious, you know, when did that happen, and and what made you decide to do that? Yeah, so I, I was fortunate to get my vaccine a little bit ahead of everyone else. I got it back in um, August and September of twenty twenty uh, because I was a part of the Pfizer phase three trial. I, um, it's funny, you know, as the pandemic kind of unfolded last year and we started to see more and more information about the vaccines progressing, I really followed them closely in the news. But, of course, I'm not a vaccine researcher and wasn't very involved personally. Then um, in August, I actually got an ad on my Instagram um, advertising the phase three trial, and they were looking for volunteers to actually be in the study. And I kind of clicked on the ad, was looking through the website, and decided, like, you know, what the heck, I'll, I'll sign up. Um, I got a call actually that same day saying that, you know, we're close to the end of recruitment, but we want you to join. Like, can you come in? And uh, I got enrolled in the study. Um, it's, uh, you know, of course, a two, a two dose injection, as we all know now. So I got that first dose at the first study visit. And it's a blinded study, double blinded, which meant that at the time I didn't know if I got the vaccine or the placebo. And the people giving it to me didn't know if I got the vaccine or the placebo. Um, I went home, you know, didn't really have any anything weird happen to me or feel anything different, and I had no idea what I'd gotten. Uh, but when I came back for the second study visit a couple of weeks later and got the injection, I had a really different reaction. I uh, got home and started feeling sick. I developed chills, nausea, a headache, fatigue, and felt really sicker than I'd felt in a long time. Um, in the morning after that second vaccine, I woke up and uh, checked my temperature, and I had a fever of 104.9 degrees. So oh, my gosh. The highest fever that I've ever had. Yeah, and, um, you know, in the context of being in a study when we didn't really know as much about the vaccine mm-hmm. as we do now, I was pretty scared. Um, and I would imagine. to see a fever that high. Yeah, yeah. So I, um, you know, took some Tylenol. I called the study, and fortunately... Most of my symptoms went away that same day. But when I saw that fever, um, that was a signal to me that I had probably gotten the active vaccine. In that, <laughs> because that would be a really, uh, a really weird reaction. Um, I actually wrote a story about being in the study and, and uh, that was published in a medical journal. And one of the things I wrote about was that, you know, um, I, I'm a researcher. I have a Ph.D. and have studied, you know, randomized trials from a research perspective. But it really felt really different to be on the other side. It was disconcerting to not know what I'd gotten. And I I really felt um, a lot more empathy for what it feels like for people who are participants in research than what I understood before. Um, I found out in December that I was, uh, you know, able to be unblinded. And uh, they confirmed that I got the uh, actual vaccine as I thought I had. 
And, you know, really since then, I, I have felt so, so grateful to have been able to be a really small um, participant in the science of getting these vaccines out. Um, the pandemic has been just devastating. And back in December, things were really, really grim in Los Angeles. Um, and I think the vaccine was this really small silver lining and this sort of thing to hang on to um, to hope that the pandemic could end and that we could get to a better place. Um, I uh, watched almost my whole family get COVID, almost everyone except me. And again, just felt so grateful to have it ahead of everyone else. Um, and as soon as I could, as soon as it was approved, I uh, started volunteering to help give vaccines, first to healthcare workers, and then to everybody else was born, more people have become eligible. And, you know, as I'm giving them in the car lines here in LA, I am sure to tell everyone, um, you know, look out for side effects because they might happen to you. Uh, we know from the trial data that has since come out that side effects are actually very common for these vaccines, more so than the flu shot. And even though most people won't have a reaction like I did, I think it does help uh, people's anxiety and concerns about vaccines just to know what to expect. So I was curious when you started to have all those symptoms, and of course, as you stated, we really still weren't sure about these vaccines. You know, how scared were you in terms of what could potentially happen? Yeah, I, I was really scared. I was considering going to the ER because, again, okay. uh, in the yes. context of a study, I didn't really know the range of possible reactions or what was mm -hmm. going on. And, you know, as a nurse, I have had, I feel like, every possible vaccine in the books, and I've never had a reaction like this one. Um, I think that I also was concerned because, again, at the time, when I saw especially that I had a fever, you know, we had all been screening ourselves for fevers and all of these signs I was having for months as symptoms of COVID. And I knew that, of course, the vaccines couldn't cause COVID, but there was a part of me that wondered, did I somehow catch COVID between yesterday and today and what's going on um, when I saw those symptoms? And, you know, when I stepped back and really thought about it, and I actually also read the research report at that point, you know, it occurred to me that these these side effects are, are normal, right? For a lot of vaccines, they have side effects like this, and, and they happen because our immune systems are kicking into gear and responding to the vaccine and learning how to fight the virus, and that's what was happening. I just didn't quite make the connection that it would happen in such a strong way. Um, and that's why also, you know, I've been such an advocate that those of us who are vaccinators need to prepare people for what to expect because it can be alarming if you don't know and don't understand why um, it's happening. And you stated that your family also had, were they symptoms of COVID but didn't get too, uh, too, too sick, didn't have to be hospitalized? I'm just curious, you could say a little bit more about their experience. Sure. Um, it was kind of a range. Um, uh, they, some of them had really mild cases. I have some siblings who are a bit younger in college, and, and their cases were more mild. I also did have some family members who had to be hospitalized. Fortunately, no one who died, uh, but it yeah. really um, kind of, as we see, affected everybody differently, and it was really scary and stressful. I think especially for um, family members who are hospitalized, just kind of seeing in the scenario where they just had to be dropped off at the door. You know, we, we couldn't go in with them or um, be there. And it was really scary to not know what was going to happen. And at that point, you know, it occurred to me, too, that having the vaccine um, is, is a pathway back to us being able to be with our family members in the hospital, you know, if we can be protected. So, again, it's been really, really meaningful. And I feel very grateful to have been a part of the science, um, but also just to, to be able to be protected and to not have to worry so much personally um, about getting COVID in my job as a nurse or bringing it home or any other thing. 
Yeah, that must have been very, very strange to take your family member to a hospital and then just have to leave them. And uh, so you, you've experienced what so many people are still expressing um, concerns over, especially if they ended up having a loved one that died. They've never gotten that closure of being able to like touch them and say goodbye or be there uh, as they were dying. And so, you know, thank you for sharing that because you've had several different perspectives. Um, was your family really worried when they knew that you were going to participate in the vaccine trial? Yeah, they were. A lot of people told me, uh, oh, my God, you're super brave. <laughs> um, uh, and what's funny is that, you know, when the vaccines first started being talked about, if we look at polls about what people thought of them, a lot of people were pretty skittish about the vaccines. They didn't trust them. And this sort of new mRNA yes. technology was something that made people nervous. So we have seen that change dramatically over time. And now most people say they want it. I think that um, looking at the safety and efficacy data, these vaccines are incredibly safe, incredibly effective. And I think people are starting to understand that we all have a part to play in getting back to normal. And that means getting the vaccine when it's offered to you. So, um, yes. yeah, I, I feel fortunate to have seen it from a lot of perspectives, but very excited to getting out there. Well, thank you. This is All About Nursing. I'm your host, Dr. Joyce Batchelor. We're live on the BBM Global Network and TuneIn Radio. And right now it's time for us to take a short break. Are you struggling to care for elderly parents or a spouse? Do you wonder if being a caregiver is making you sick? Are you worried about taking time off work to care for elderly parents and balance work, life, and caregiving? Has caregiving become exhausting and emotionally draining? Are you an aging adult who wants to remain independent, but you're not sure how? I'm Pamela D. Wilson. Join me for the Caring Generation radio show for caregivers and aging adults, Wednesday evenings, 6 Pacific, 7 Mountain, 8 Central, and 9 Eastern, where I answer these questions and share tips for managing stress, family relationships, health, well-being, and more. Podcasts and transcripts of the Caring Generation are on my website, PamelaDWilson.com plus my caregiving library, online caregiver support programs, and programs for corporations interested in supporting working caregivers. Help, hope, and support for caregivers is here on The Caring Generation and PamelaDWilson.com. America is out of control. Today's capitalism and the approach to money is in fact a symptom of a more widespread pattern of excessive behavior. In his book, The Culture of Excess, How America Lost Self-Control and Why We Need to Redefine Success, clinical psychologist Dr. Jay Slosar portrays an America where excess fuels the drive to succeed. Dr. Slosar examines the cultural factors that lead to excess ranging from obesity to fraud to pervasive budget deficits. His book examines the powerful economic and social factors and their impact on our psychological well-being. Dr. Slosar explores the psychological impact of increasing narcissism, perfectionism, self-destruction, and our identity confusion. He offers recommendations for helping Generation Me become Generation We. Those who resist Slosar's message will want to avoid his discussion of regulation and his recent message that at this point, democracy must be more important than today's capitalism. Get his book now online or by visiting thecultureofexcess.com. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to All About Nursing, live from the BVM Global Network and TuneIn Radio. I'm Dr. Joyce Batcher, the host of the show. And I have Dr. Kristen Choi, who's the Assistant Professor of Nursing and Public Health at UCLA. She has been telling us about the 
um, volunteer that she was for the COVID-19 vaccine trial and what it meant and some of the symptoms that she had herself when she received the second vaccine. And uh, now that you've been in the study and you've gotten your vaccines, what is it like now to be a vaccinated? Because you had started to mention that you are now giving vaccines. So what's your experiences like? Uh, well, on the whole, Joyce, it's been a really, really positive experience. I, I think people are just so, so excited to be getting this vaccine and, and to see, again, an end to the pandemic in sight. When I first started getting vaccines, this was back in December, when, when they were first authorized, of course, they were really only going to healthcare workers. Um, I got to help give vaccines to healthcare workers. So one of the best things I also got to do was to help nursing students give vaccines to healthcare workers. You know, for a lot of our nursing students, they have been um, sitting on Zoom the whole year. And for a lot of them, the first thing they ever got to do in person as a nursing student was give a COVID vaccine. And so that was very meaningful for them as students and future nurses, as well as for the staff receiving them, who in many cases were also nurses. Um, very, very positive. Um, once the uh, vaccine tiers started opening up to a broader range of people, uh, here in LA, like a lot of cities, uh, we kind of had to quickly scramble to get logistics together for some really big mass vaccination sites. You know, never really done something like this before, but LA set up a number of different sites for drive-in, as well as hospital-based sites and some community sites for walk-in um, appointments for people to be able to get vaccines. And that started with the elderly. I gave vaccines to people who were in their hundreds and 90s and, you know, uh, very, um, very old and all very excited to be getting the vaccine. And of course, it's now expanded more and more to encompass a broader range of people. Um, it's been really interesting in a city like L.A. to see kind of the range of how different sites are set up. Um, but at the drive-in sites, you know, we see just about everybody from all different corners of the city. Um, there are some that are really uh, oriented towards reaching the Hispanic community in L.A. and others that are really oriented and located uh, where there are a lot of black communities. And so um, the sites are all run differently, and I think they have made a significant effort to try to uh, reach people in communities where they are. Um, and I bring that up because one of the biggest challenges that we've had in vaccine rollout is equity issues. Uh, we have seen that people who are white are disproportionately getting vaccines faster than people of color, and also that there are a lot of equity issues with how the vaccines are distributed. Um, if you don't have a car, you can't really drive up to one of the sites. Um, if you don't speak English or you don't know how to use a computer or maybe you don't have a computer, you're not going to be able to sign up for an appointment. There is also um, an equity issue in terms of time. I've heard some patients tell me, you know, I have been sitting on my computer refreshing for four hours and I had my kids and my husband and all these people all refreshing until I could get an appointment. And that's great. I've also seen lots of people who have been standing in line hoping to get an extra dose for hours and hours. But not everybody has the luxury of time to sit around and refresh and wait for an appointment or stand in line hoping to get a vaccine. You know, if you're working multiple jobs, if you have uh, caregiving responsibilities, you know, you're not going to be in a position to get those kind of rare um, extra doses that come up. So I say all of that because I think that that is uh, kind of our next challenge of getting the vaccine out and making sure that we get it to the communities that have been hit hardest by COVID, uh, that we are working with community leaders and institutions that are trusted uh, to get people access to the vaccine and to make sure that it's equitable. 
Are you still hearing or seeing a lot of people that don't want the vaccine, that are still worried about it and have some misconceptions about the way it's been uh, created? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I am personally not. At the vaccine sites right now, we still are kind of in a situation where demand is dramatically higher than supply. And so everyone that I see is very, very eager to get it. We actually have the opposite problem, like people trying to cut in line because they want it so badly. (laughs) But um, I I do see uh, certainly in the news and in data and public polls that that is still out there, that there are some people who are concerned about it. Um, I, and I, you know, I think that we're doing a good job at getting past that. Polls have shown that more and more and more people um, are wanting the vaccine and in a place where they want to get it and they trust it. Uh, we have a lot more data about the vaccines. There's some really, really early observational data about how vaccines are affecting special populations. We know that the CDC has a registry for pregnant women, which so far suggests that it's been safe. And, you know, we're learning more and more, which I think helps um grow people's confidence. I think the other thing that helps is just knowing someone who's got it. Yeah, you know, when I signed up for the study, I mentioned this, all my family and friends said, you know, oh my God, you're so brave. I would never do that. I would never get this. Uh, but once I got it and, you know, kind of um, explained how it worked and they saw it, a lot of them said, wow, like, I, I want to get it too. I-, I might also sign up for the study or when it comes out, I want to get it. And so as more and more people get it and are able to talk about their experiences and talk about what it means to them and why it's a positive thing. I also think that really helps influence our, our peers and our circle around us to, to feel more comfortable getting the vaccine and to see that it's, it's safe and it's okay. Yes, I would say that one of the things that is routinely seen when I'm vaccinating is the word people will use is that they're hopeful again. And, uh, and I've had some, you know, also some very tough situations where I had a young lady and she was pretty much in tears, not because of my injection, but because she said (laughs) that she was so angry about people still not believing that it's real. She had lost three family members and she was just so relieved to be getting the vaccine. And so, you know, I I have found it extremely rewarding actually to uh, be a vaccinator, right? Um, but I, I have heard that yeah. some some nurses, particularly those that are pregnant, are still skeptical. And I, I know that everything that's coming out of the CDC says it's okay, and I've been giving vaccines to pregnant women, but we might want to talk about that a little bit after this break. But that's still one population that seems to be having questions. This is All About Nursing. Sure. I'm your host, Dr. Joyce Batchelor. We're live on the Beaver Global Network Continuing Radio, and we'll continue this conversation when we come back. French Rastafarian baker Chef Oug Mat is a fourth-generation baker and has worked in 11 countries across three continents. Born in Mulhouse, France, he began apprenticing in his father's bakery at age 12 and has devoted his life to learning cultures of the world from inside kitchens across the globe. He also teaches traditional French baking by hosting demonstrations and classes, and his passion for baking is reflected in his delicious confections. With a deep respect for discipline and his Rastafarian way of life, Sheikh Uvmat exemplifies commitment to tradition and culture in a global world. Traveling extensively and combining a myriad of flavors into his recipes, Chef Ugmat brings a unique approach to baking. 
To read more about the French Rastafarian baker, visit www.frenchchefoub.com. That's H-U-G-U-E-S. Bon appetit and bless up. Escape from Hell, A Woman's Story is a passionate book that tells the true story of author Rhonda Knudsen's journey through the darkness and adversity of abuse. The book takes readers on an emotional trail from the depths of despair to the heights of forgiveness and understanding. She was inspired to help others, and her book is a vital tool through this process. Faithful to God and devotional to her beacon of hope, Rhonda Knudsen is a perfect example of finding a guiding light that helped her come through the dark and into the light. Her book can assist you in overcoming your challenges with abuse. The publication of Escape from Hell, A Woman's Story is a triumphant achievement, and it can help you take ownership of your own experience of abuse and come through stronger than before. Rhonda is currently working on two more books, Shadows of Corruption and Coast to Coast on a Piece of Toast. To read more about this inspiring author and purchase her books, visit RhondaKnutson.com or go to www.amazon.com. I'm your host, Dr. Joyce Batchelor, and all about nursing, and we're live on the BBM Global Network in TuneIn Radio. And my guest, Dr. Kristen Choi, has been sharing with us a lot of the great work she's been doing. And we were just starting to talk about the fact that um, I'm still hearing a lot of nurses, particularly those that are pregnant, very hesitant to get the vaccine. And I was curious, Kristen, if you're hearing or seeing any of that as well. Yeah, I, I am. You know, we, we definitely saw when the vaccines were first being offered to healthcare workers that there were some disparities there as well, where uh, a lot of nurses, um, LVNs, nursing aides, and particularly people who worked in nursing homes um, did not want to get the vaccine. And we still see some cases where uh, some nurses and other healthcare workers still don't want to get it. You know, it, this is a concern because as the ones who are giving the vaccine, you know, I think it can go a really long ways with our patients to be able to say, I've gotten this vaccine and I trust it. Kind of like I mentioned before, just being able to talk to a real person really matters. And for our nurses, we know that they have uh, had a lot on their plates this year. A lot of nurses have been really busy with work and, um, you know, don't necessarily um, have, uh, are necessarily reading the news every day and, and keeping up with every single vaccine development. So I think it's really important as we think about getting vaccine information out to the public that we also include our healthcare workers in that and know that um, they also may benefit from uh, information and uh, facts, knowing how the vaccines work and why they're important. That's great. I was curious, what do you think we have learned from the COVID-19 pandemic about nursing and healthcare? Yeah, I think a lot. Uh, the first one I think is that we have learned a lot about kind of the relationship between public health and what goes on for us as hospital workers and nurses who work in hospitals. Uh, you know, over time, unfortunately, we've seen a lot of erosion of our public health resources and public health departments. And I think that, especially in a hospital setting, it can be really easy to just focus on the people in front of us and forget about the bigger context, about where people are coming from before they get to the hospital. I think this pandemic has really made clear how important it is that we have robust public health infrastructure and that that matters for us, even at the point of ICUs and hospitals for for keeping people well. I think the other thing we've learned is um, just that it's really important that we recognize kind of the human side of what it means to be a healthcare worker and that we as um, nurses uh, really know um, 
the human side of what it means to be a patient. I hope that we will all come out of this pandemic with more empathy and a greater sense of each other's humanity. And then some of that uh, more empathetic interpersonal care will find its way into healthcare and into what we prioritize in hospitals. Um, I already mentioned this one and uh, you know, I'm a bit biased here, but I do think also I hope we come out of this pandemic with more um, empathy for mental health. I think that I have seen um, lowered stigma around mental health. And then that's in part because almost all of us are dealing with some kind of psychological struggle in some way, whether it's stress or loneliness or depression, uh, we are all feeling that. And I, I think that there's really great potential for that to help lower some of the stigma in the U.S. around mental illness and for all of us um, to be in a place where it's okay to seek help if we need it and where we can encourage our loved ones to get help. So that's really what I would like to see change going forward. I, I think that there's, um, even though this pandemic has been devastating, a lot of opportunity as well to learn from it and to make a better healthcare system going forward. Thank you so much. This has been just fascinating to learn more about the work that you're leading. And I can tell just from the way that you've been able to answer all these questions and share like your experiences, why you were selected for one of the Forbes 30 under 30. Is there anything else that you would like to, well, you're welcome. Is there anything else that you would like to just message as we're getting ready to close our show this evening to the audience? Yeah, you know, uh, we've already talked touched about this quite a bit, but I think that my biggest message to people would be to get the COVID vaccine as soon as you qualify. Uh, it's a really important tool. I think probably the best one we have right now to ending this pandemic. And I really hope that we'll be close to end here and getting the vaccine is a way that all of us, whether you're a nurse or a member of the public or whoever you are, it's a way that we all can play a really small part in getting there. So get the vaccine when you have opportunity. And I hope that we're close to the end here soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on the show. And I'd like to thank our audience for tuning in. Until next time, this is Dr. Joyce Batchelor with All About Nursing, live on the BBM Global Network and TuneIn Radio. Have a wonderful week. You've been listening to All About Nursing with your host, Dr. Joyce Batchelor. Tune in each week and get a daily dose of nursing and the healthcare services they provide and how nurses are finding innovative ways to address the key healthcare issues they're facing today. Here on Dr. Joyce Batchelor's All About Nursing. You've been listening to the BBM Global Network. The ideas, views, and opinions of this broadcast are those of the participants of the program and are not necessarily the ideas, views, and opinions of the BBM Global Network Company.